Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, the big change program with Josh Lajani and Wellstart Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a happy and harmonious life. So you can hear I got a bug. I got a uh, frog in my throat which I'm not sure is completely vegan, but whatever. And so I'm going to keep the pre-announcements quite short and so we can get right to today's mellifluous and magnificent conversation with Darren Morton. First announcement is if you're looking for natural, organic, environmentally friendly, light on the planet, delicious um, vegan body care products, check out The Natural Vegan. And you can do so at plantyourself.com slash natural vegan. They sent me a bunch of stuff, which I really like. I especially like the deodorant that comes all in cardboard, so there's no plastic to have to throw away. Um, it's a cool company. I don't get any money. Uh, they are tracking my, uh, my links to see how many people I send them. But for right now, I want to protect my journalistic credibility with you by not being tempted to receive money for making recommendations. Um, which brings me to my second recommendation, which is if you know anyone with type 1 or type 2 diabetes or gestational diabetes or prediabetes or who can spell the word diabetes or who can't, I highly recommend the 2018 Mastering Diabetes Summit put on by last week's guests, Robbie Barbaro and Cyrus Kambata, PhD. The two of them are brilliant. They're making a huge impact on the world, and they, they figured out this summit sort of methodology to spread the word to tens of thousands of people, none of whom have to pay a penny to get all this information. And their financial model is just for people who want to save it and be able to listen to it and watch it again and again and again, can pay a small amount for the privilege. So to find out more and to sign up to get all these great free talks, just go to plantyourself.com slash MD. That's MD, like medical doctor. In this case, it stands for Mastering Diabetes. Plantyourself.com slash MD. Now, if you appreciate the fact that I am not taking affiliate commission for making recommendations, that I'm just recommending things that I truly believe in for you, and you realize that I also have to make a living somehow, and the podcast is completely free, and it always has been and always will be, along with lots and lots of other resources. And you would like to throw some money my way to keep the thing going. You can do so via Patreon. You can just go to patreon.com slash plant yourself or just search on the Patreon page for plant yourself. 
and make an ongoing monthly contribution. I reached a new milestone last week. I'm up to $500 a month, which is halfway to my first goal of 1000 a month, which would allow me to do a whole lot more with the podcast. Um, the other way is to help the startup that I just co-founded, WellStart Health. We offer a digital therapeutic intervention for employees who are suffering from chronic diseases like diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, heart disease, things like that, or who are at high risk of developing them. So we're really wellness for the sick. We're lifestyle medicine interventions for those employees whom otherwise would just be costing their companies thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a month through galloping disease management costs, drugs, surgeries, all that sort of thing. And of course, it's a plant-based program, but we don't refer to it as such. We refer to it as an evidence-based program. It involves the big change program methodology. Josh and I have both have both joined to infuse WellStart Health with that methodology. And our goal is, instead of reaching a few hundred people a year, as we're doing with the big change program, to take this nationally to take this to large corporations and to spread the plant-based lifestyle message to populations that so far have not been privy to it. Things like in the, the trucking industry, the transportation industry, uh, oil rig workers, manufacturing, you know, not your typical uh, Whole Foods crowd. So that's what we're up to. And what would really help at this point is getting some more clients small pilot projects, 20 people, 50 people, 100 people, taking them through the program, demonstrating the return on investment of a, a small amount of money for lifestyle digital intervention to save tons of money on future healthcare costs. If you are in a position to have that conversation with us about bringing us into your organization, or if there's someone you can introduce us to, that would be awesome. All right, and now to today's show. Again, my voice doesn't sound that great, and it sure doesn't feel that great, so I'm going to keep it real short. Darren Morton is an awesome guy. He is uh, the author, most recently, of a book called Live More Happy, and he was a little uh, uncomfortable at putting the word happy in the title just because he thought people would not take it seriously. So he insisted to the publisher that the subtitle be Scientifically Proven Ways to Lift Your Mood and Your Life. And, you know, this is sort of a plant-based podcast. We talk a lot about plants for health. But really, as he reminds us in this conversation, the point of health, the point of everything, is just to sort of feel good in the world, in our bodies, in our families, in our relationships. And mental health is a big part of that. And so we tackle the mental game of living a long, happy life in this interview. Darren's a very positive, high-energy, passionate guy. I know you would find him inspiring and hilarious, even if he didn't have that awesome Aussie accent. But since he does, it's even better. So without further ado, Darren Morton, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Oh, it's great to be with you, Howard. Yeah. So you have, uh, you've just written this fabulous book. And since we're doing a, a video, I can show people. It's called Live More Happy. <laughs> it's it's really it's a it's a fun read i love how you sort of play with with language to make concepts memorable and mm. so you know you are you're interested in longevity and health and well-being so why why slap the word happy 
on the title of a book? What was, what was the idea? That is a great question. In fact, when we, we market tested the publisher, market tested the, the title, they said, we've come back and this is what people like most, uh, live more happy. And I just went, oh, I'm not sure about that. And obviously the reason for that is that happy often in the minds of people conjures this fluffy, trite, you know, a bit, not, not something that doesn't have substance to it. Mm. And so I was a bit anxious about that. So I, I made sure they, they put the byline at the end of the book, which is scientifically proven ways to lift your mood in your life. And um, so, look, happiness I have a great interest in. I was just a little bit nervous, and I think it's a great word. I was just a little bit nervous that people would give the people impression that this wasn't undergirded by, by solid science, and, and, and that certainly is. I mean, there's over 300 references in there. You know. But, look, my journey... Um, towards happiness really has started a long, long, long time ago. I, I was, I've actually um, was first involved in developing a program called the Complete Health Improvement Program, which is a very popular lifestyle medicine intervention um, that actually advocates a plant-based eating pattern um, for <clears throat> for the reversal of chronic diseases. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your your hand in in the development of that because I've uh, I've interviewed Dr. Hans Deal and I adore him and uh, I, yeah well, i hadn't realized that that, uh, that you were part of that initiative as well yeah so dr deal he you know is really one of a mentor to me and and sort of introduced me to the whole lifestyle medicine space in some regards through chip and chip's been around for a long time but uh around about almost oh, probably a decade or, or so now i had a phd student who was looking at some of the outcomes of chip um that were achieved in new zealand he was based in new zealand and it was, it was my first introduction really to lifestyle medicine. And, uh, and I was looking at these results and just going, wow, this is phenomenal. And uh, there was a company in Australia called Sanitarium, Sanitarium Health and Wellbeing. And they came and saw me and said, oh, look, we're interested in developing a, a program that um, communities could use uh, that gets measurable outcomes. Do you, have you got any ideas? And anyway, I, I was just sort of, chewing the fat with these guys, um, so to speak. And I said, oh, well, have you heard of the CHIP program? And they're like, um, there's not so much fat in that, by the way. Um, but they, they said, have you heard of the CHIP? I said, have you heard of the CHIP program? And they said, no. And anyway, they went and they contacted Dr. Deal. One thing led to another and, um, and they ended up by um, purchasing the global rights for CHIP. And at that time, they said, oh, look, we really need to, you know, give CHIP a bit of a facelift. And they asked if I would come and help uh, do that. So, yes, yeah, so, so I got to know Dr. Dill really well um, and helped sort of develop the new version of CHIP and, and I'm a presenter in that, which is really exciting. I mean, CHIP's now operating in, as I think I mentioned before, over 10 countries around the world. And where I'm based here um, at the university I'm at, we have a lifestyle research centre and all the data from the CHIP programs conducted throughout the world come back to here so we we analyze and publish from that wow yeah. what what i'm curious i know we want to get into the book but i'm uh, i'm just going to follow my curiosity here what what sort of of uh, data are are you getting is it just is it sort of you know self report or clinical or economic at what at what level are you looking for and finding um, outcome measures yeah so at the moment as a standard part of the, the chip program people do do clinical measurements so they get blood work done so we look at you know changes in lipid profiles and changes in you know bmi body mass index and um, fasting plasma glucose 
as well as some behavioural questions as well. So we, we publish, a, you know, that from, from that, that kind of um, data and that's standard as, as a mandatory sort of part of the CHIP program. So I mean, we've published articles in the American Journal of Cardiology where we've had 5,000 documented the outcomes of 5,000 CHIP participants. Actually, we now have a data set of, over, I think it's getting close to 12,000 CHIP participants. So it's a very, you know, powerful source, great resource from publication perspective but then we do other more uh, specific studies like I have another PhD student at present who uh, is looking at using CHIP in a clinical setting as a shared medical appointment and we're specifically interested in diabetes reversal there so yeah there's a lot of lot of activities going on. Uh-huh. So um, we, I asked you the question about your, your journey towards happiness so you said like the chip was kind of a uh, a stepping stone for that interest. Yeah, it was. Now it's it's been one stepping stone. I originally come from an education background, and then my my PhD was really in human physiology with an exercise bent. So I have a great interest. I've always had a, a strong interest in exercise. Then I got involved in chip and helping develop that, which is really a nutrition driven program. But what I, I sort of sat back and analysed, and one of the interesting things that came out of chip is we were putting people on this, it was quite sort of intensive therapeutic lifestyle change. We were encouraging people to really shift towards a, a plant-based eating pattern. And within a matter of days, these people would, the, the most common feedback we got, and we weren't actually capturing, you know, valid data on it, but these anecdotal reports, people saying, I just feel better. Like, I feel better. I, don't, I can't even describe it. It's like, a, a, like, my, like a fog is lifted from my brain and all of a sudden... Feel like I'm coming to life again, and so there was actually a publication back in oh, 2011 now showing that CHIP, which is this nutrition-driven program, was actually very effective at relieving depressive symptoms, and that really interests me uh, because you know what for me, I mean, and I'm very immersed in in the lifestyle medicine world at the moment, and you know I love the fact that you know lifestyle medicine can be so powerful for managing and, and in some instances reversing conditions like, you know, your heart disease and your diabetes and your anginas and all the rest of it, all these physical ailments. But, you know, the end goal for me is actually for people to feel better. I want people to feel better. That's it. And, you know, so why don't I want them to have chronic conditions? It's because you feel lousy when you're sick. And so I think really boiling under the surface for me has always been this great interest in emotional well-being. You know, what does it take to really live well, to live our best life? Now, that has, has just been bubbling to the surface over the last probably decade or so. And what is driving that for me is that I think the next big thing is mental health. I think, um, and, and the statistics are certainly indicating this is the direction it will go. In fact, it's even been said by some commentators that um, the 20th century was a century of heart disease and the 21st century will be the, the century of neurodegenerative diseases, including, you know, mental health issues. And, and look, I, I mean, I live in Australia, probably haven't picked that from my accent as yet, but um, I, I, in Australia, one in 10 adults wake up this morning and will take an antidepressant. Mm. Now, that, that to me is just, you know, make, as we, we're a developed country, you know, we, in Australia, we talk about Australia being the lucky country, um, we've got a lot going right for us over here, and yet obviously there are a lot of people that are really struggling. 
That's the prevalence of use of antidepressant medications has doubled in the past decade. Now, in the US, if my, if my um, sources are correct, say that about one in eight adults are taking antidepressants today. All right. I think, I think the total of, of psychoactive drugs is you know, legal, legally prescribed is like one in four. One in four. At any given time. So if you add the uh, anti-anxieties and mm. the... Uh, yeah. So, you know, what, what, look, I, and I, I'm very always, I mean, I talk at medical conventions all the time, and I'm very careful to say, ah, people shouldn't be doing that. Look, I'm, I'm not, I think modern medicine has some, some fantastic things to contribute. But my, this is my issue, is that we know that there are many positive things people can do to lift their mood. And in fact, in some cases, they're, Studies, you know, that the, the, um, the empirical study data indicates that they're just as effective as antidepressants, and often they work like that, like faster. And I'm thinking to myself, what, why isn't this message getting out there? You know, why don't people? And in fact, you know, one, one of my goals is to see uh, the prescription of things like happiness. The, the, when you go to, to the, the, the physician and you say, you know, I'm feeling fairly low, at the moment, at least in my country, there's one mode of, of treatment that's offered. It's like, well, here you go. This might help you to feel a bit better. That, that to me, in a developed country, you know, when we have the, the amount of evidence that we do, that to me is just, it's almost criminal. It should be, you know, the physician saying, hey, so here you go. Here are your options. Here are some things that we know that can be helpful. Now, I know that not everyone's going to jump on board and go, yeah, put me on a, you know, on a lifestyle intervention. But, hey, we should at least have the opportunity and, and there should be an increased awareness about it. So, you know, one of my things that I'm pushing for is amongst um, the medical fraternity is to start prescribing happiness when people need it mm. by having a greater awareness of some of the evidence-based things that we can do. So, so if someone comes in and they have high cholesterol, there's, there's a number that mm. you can look at and you can say, okay, well, this person should be on this this drug regimen, or if someone has an elevated A1C, it's clear, okay, so there is a good candidate for metformin. How do you suggest the clinicians assess sort of the, the clinical line item, the billable condition of absence of happiness? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? And, and, and here's the problem when we start to deal with, you know, subjective measures. You know, unlike a blood test result, which comes back and bang, there's your number. And so we have our guide. This, this is, you know, we start to talk about people's mental health and their emotional well-being. It really, there is a, a degree of subjectivity to that. And whilst we have, you know, biomet we have um, psychometrics, we have questionnaires that we can give people that sort of indicate, you know, where they're falling on it. They're not well used or, or at least in, in my country, they're not used at all by, by clinicians um, on a, sort of like a family, you know, from a family physician's perspective, which is like we, we call them general practitioners over here. They're the front line and yet there's, there's no assessment like that that takes place. It's more a subjective, oh, look, I'm, you know, I'm not feeling great, you know, or I've got these symptoms. Um, so, yeah, so in terms of a, a raw score, it's, it's not commonly, commonly used. I think I remember reading somewhere that in uh, some explanation of the re of research around happiness that it turns out that like one of the most validated tools is simply asking people, "Are you as happy, more happy, or less happy than the people you know than than the average person?" 
Yeah, that's correct. And and look, there are there are in this this space. I, and this is what I've done in the book. Essentially, I, I'm very much immersed in the lifestyle medicine world. And what we've discovered, what we're discovering in the lifestyle medicine world, is that what's good for your body, which has historically been the focus of lifestyle medicine, is also excellent for your brain. And so there's that lifestyle medicine space. Then there's the, the positive psychology world. And within that, there's been a great amount of work being done and some really good quality um, learnings from that space. And then in positive psychology, I should add, is not pop psychology. Positive psychology is the scientific study of what it takes for humans to, to truly flourish. Um, but anyway, within that world, yeah, they've developed some really good metrics to get an idea and a handle on, on what, um, you know, how happy people are. What's interesting in, in that, I mentioned before that we have you know, this, this portion of the population, and it's, to my mind, a lot, you know, it's too big portion of the population that say that are taking antidepressants. What it's a sign of is that people are really struggling emotionally, right? And so you've got those, you know, that portion down the bottom who are acting on that, trying to do something about it, seeking help, which is, you know, in itself a great thing. What the science, particularly from the, the positive psychology space, seems to indicate that probably only about 20% of people, so one in five, indicate that they're flourishing in life. So, you know, if I, if I sort of think about the, the continuum here, we've got... 20% of people, the top 20% who are saying, you know, yeah, life's going well. You know, I'm really, I'm happy. Things are going, you know, smashingly. Then down the bottom, we know, you know, well, as, as I said, in my country at least, we've got 10% who are quite probably quite desperately low and, and are, you know, on medication for that. But yet we still have this chunk in the middle, probably, you know, 70, 60 to 70% who are still not, might not they're saying, not they're, they're not saying they're unwell, but they're not well either. And so I think there's just, yeah, we, we, there's a really important, some really important messages that need to get out there. And that was the whole purpose of writing Live More Happy. Mm. Well, one of the things I've discovered through helping, through coaching people to lifestyle improvement is that there are many antidepressants that people self-medicate with that aren't Prozac and Paxil, but mm. are, you know, cookies and donuts and, yeah. and cheeseburgers. Yeah. Right? So we have, you know, we have what we didn't have uh, 100 years ago, which is an entire industry devoted to creating these, these food highs from, yes. you know, that, that are just as artificial and, and uh, just as concentrated as the drugs that are, uh, yes. you know, that are, that are synthesized off of natural patterns. Um, and, you know, that once, once people stop, once people struggle to stop eating those foods because i know very few people who can you just tell them oh these are bad for you oh okay now i'll stop when people <laughs> in that struggle then all of a sudden the depths of their unhappiness begins to become manifest to them yeah and these are great points and, and and this is one of the other reasons why i think you know from a behavior change perspective and you know i like you are in the game of trying to help people adopt healthier lifestyles but you know what, that's, that's largely driven by what's well, it's massively influenced by how people feel. So, you know, when, when people say, oh, I'm going to start being more active, and there they are sitting on the, the sofa, and say, oh, I thought you, you know, you were going to go for a walk, and it's like, yeah, but I don't feel like it. You know, or why are you eating? I thought you said you were going to sort of eat a bit healthier now, and yet now you're eating a cheese burger the size of your head. Um, what's that about, mate? Well, it's because I feel like it. You know, so... Really, our emotional state 
you know, it drives their health behaviours to a huge extent. I, um, one of my favourite kids' stories, I love children's books, and there's one that's called Some Dogs Do by Jez Ulbar, and it's a story of this little dog who he gets happy and he actually starts to fly, and then when he's not happy, he starts to fall. But he goes through this little experience where his friends tell him that dogs don't fly, you know, you just, that's not you, that's, you lied and, and all the rest of it. And, and so his happiness goes. And there's this classic little image in the book where Sid the dog is sitting in front of the television with a plate full of cookies beside him, just looking all forlorn. You know, and I thought that just sums it up. I think that Jez Elber in, in the book just captures this idea that so much of, you know, when we feel low, this is where we go. Um, and, you know, you, you, to make the point, we, we ask people to start, you know, stop eating that way. But if that's their comfort food, if that is what they're doing to self-medicate, then what's being put in its place? You know, Dean Ornish, you know, one of the great pioneers in the, in the lifestyle medicine space, talks about smoking. And he said he had a patient one time who, who was trying to cut back and, and, and the patient said to him, well, if you take these away from me, you know, I've, got, I've essentially got 25 friends in this pack. You know, what am I left with? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's really important. I, I think that's... Caring for people's emotional well-being, their emotional intelligence, if you like, is just paramount to helping people successfully move towards more healthy behaviours. Right. One, one of the things that uh, when, I, when I, I see people turn the corner towards health and I know it's become a permanent or a sort of an iterative process is when they understand that feeling like it is not a prerequisite. Yeah. Right? Yes. That yeah. Oh yeah, of course I don't feel like it, but yes. that's not that's not relevant right now because in an hour I will have I will feel like I was glad that I did. You know, and and yeah, abs- and, I, and I love that. In fact, one of the things, and you know, like you, we I, as we were chatting before that the interview come from education backgrounds. One thing that we know is that reflection on what you're learning and what you're doing is really important to instill learning and. And so, yeah, that idea, I, I do exactly what you just mentioned there. Say to people, hey, after you've done this, think, how do you feel now? You know, what, what, what's, let's reflect, reflect on that. And what you can actually get sort of emotional leverage on people by when they get in the habit of going, you know what, when I did eat that way or when I did move that way or when I did do this positive behaviour, I felt better for that. There's really effective learning that takes place when, that, when, when you do that. So, yeah, I think it's a great strategy. Mm. So let's get into um, some of the uh, elements of the book. You start, you start by introducing what you call the limbo, right? <laughs> yeah. the, the limbic system. Can you talk about just the, the basic research, the scientific, you know, what, we are, what our understandings are of the structures of the brain and how they relate to happiness? Yeah. So I, you know, what I, I sort of I, I try and beg forgiveness from people um, on the account of the fact that I'm Australian. Uh, so, yeah. But you've got to realise that, you know, we Australians, we, we arose as a, a nation of convicts that got sent here from, from all other parts of the world. So we're, we're rebels in, 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 uh, in many ways. But we have this habit of just giving nicknames to virtually everything. So, you know, well, I'm Australian, but everyone calls us Aussies as a, as a case in point. We actually had the, the Sydney Millennium Olympics um, the, the mascots for that became Sid, Millie and Ollie. So we just, this is what we do. This is what we do down under. So, look, I, this, this limbic region of the brain, which, you know, the neuroscientists essentially know this is the part that drives our effective 
experiences. So, you know, we've got the amygdala in there and the hippocampus and, and all that kind of stuff. I, my point, I think that people, um, people need palatable ways to digest information. And so I um, probably because maybe it's because my brain is so simple that I like to, to bring things down to a simple level so that people can understand it. And so I give a nickname to the limbic region of the brain, which is your emotional brain, your feeling brain. And I call it the limbo. And um, essentially what I do throughout the book is say, this part of your brain, all right, like the rest of your brain, it, it, it relies on what it's told to manifest certain feelings. So, you know, the, the analogy I use, my, my brother-in-law is a neurosurgeon and, and uh, he will tell you that when he does neurosurgery on someone's brain, um, before he cuts through the skin, he has to put anaesthetic in there because people get really ticked off at you if you start cutting through their scalp with, uh, without anaesthetic because your scalp has feelings. And, uh, and then when you get into, obviously, to go through the bone, you have to put anaesthetic through the bone because that really hurts if you start drilling through that without it. But once you're in the brain tissue itself, then no anaesthetic is required because your brain has no feelings of itself. And so the question, I suppose, that I ask in, in the book is, let's look at your emotional brain, this limbic region of your brain, this limbo. And once again, it has no feelings of itself. So then how does it know when to make you feel sad, mad, glad, or bad? How does it know when to initiate these emotional states? And so then the logical step is that it relies on, on what it's told. And if you know the sources of inputs to your limbo, then you can purposefully and intentionally use those sources to send it the messages that you want. And so some of this is quite, you know, intuitive. And some of these things we actually do already, but I'm hoping I've actually, even people that are very informed that have read the book and gone through the material have gone, ah, there are a couple of things that I, you know, I didn't know that was new to me. And for many people, it's like, whoa, this is like a complete paradigm shift. So yeah, so look, the book really focuses on introducing basic neuroscience by saying your limbo, your limbic region of your brain, um, your, which is your emotional brain you can learn, you can discover strategies, evidence-based strategies for sending it more uplifting messages. And in doing so, you can change your emotional state. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm one of those who, um, the book wasn't a complete paradigm shift for me, but, there, but on you know, every few pages I made a note, like, oh my God, this is amazing. So mm. the, fir the first one I made was about the research on nuns and 1952 baseball players. Yes. Can you, can you share that? I just, I found that awesome. Yeah, well, the, the interesting, so these are some of the studies. People often ask the question, well, what's the use in happiness? Right? What's the use in happiness? I, I think um, Henry uh, Youngman once said, uh, what's the use in happiness? It can't buy you money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so what, the, the science, the sort of the happiness science actually is, is indicating that there is a lot of use to being emotionally well. And, you know, we, we actually know things like how you feel affects how you heal. And some of the studies that have come out in that space, I find absolutely captivating. We might be able to talk about that. But one of the other big things is that we know that happy people tend to live longer. And some of the, 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 the just, I know I threw out some, you know, quite quirky, interesting studies. And one of them is the nun study where they had 180 nuns who back in the 1920s and the 30s when they entered the, the convent, um, they had to write an 
autobiography. And so just a, a few paragraphs about, you know, what they'd been up to, uh, what their hopes and dreams and aspirations for the future were. And this, then this got filed. So researchers, I think it's from the University of Kentucky, went and dug out these autobiographies uh, in the in early 2000s. So this was like, you know, they'd been written sort of 70 or uh, 80 years ago. And then what they did is just analyse the tone of the writings to see how sort of upbeat, you know, how positive and optimistic they were or whether they tended to use more downcast, you know, pessimistic, forlorn words. And then they mapped this against um, how, against longevity. So they're interested, to, they, were, they were saying, they, the nuns on average are about 93 and they said, so how many of them are still alive at the age of 93? What they found is that the least happy nuns, as indicated by their writings, you know, 70 or 80 years ago, only about 20 percent of them were still alive at the age of 93 uh, whereas the most happy nuns over half of them were still alive and so this is incredible and I, mean, I should add that nuns make for an excellent study population because so many of their lifestyle habits are, um, are, are similar you know they, they don't do drugs because that's actually frowned on in the convent um, they're, they're, you know, they're, their eating patterns are much the same they um, you know their, their movement patterns so yeah, so this, this was a really interesting study. Um, but then other researchers have, have come on and thought, hey, I wonder if you could even predict how long someone lived according to how much they smiled in a photograph. And so you know, another, another group of team researchers, they got all the Major League Baseball cards from 1952 and then just analysed how the, 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 the smile intensity, if you like. And so they looked at, you know, they had some people just like, you know, they were too cool for school and they're, you know, got this in their, their photo. And then others had the, the, the big, what we call the, the douching smile, where your cheeks are lifting and your face is genuinely excited. Anyway, they found that the people had the biggest grins, that the baseball players who had the biggest and cheesiest smiles lived on average seven years longer than those that didn't smile at all. And you think, well, how could that? Surely not. But obviously, probably what the, the, the point of it is that the smilier people in their, their photos were probably smiley most of the time. They're more happy. Um, and there are other studies that have backed that up. Uh, so anyway, I talk about some of those. So, yeah, they're just quirky little interesting um, studies that have, that have been conducted. Right, which leads me, leads me to wonder whether, you know, supermodels um, are going to, you know, live less because of the bulimia or because they, they have to have these pouts. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, good call. Right. Yeah, and obviously so a perspective study like that is... Um, Cor, you know, correlational, the, uh, the smile could be the effect as opposed to the cause, but there seems to be some evidence within sort of the, you know, modern sort of embodied psychology that making a smile is one of the inputs that your limbo could receive to say, oh, we're happy, right? Is there, is, is that true? Am I, am I uh, yeah. overstating that? Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, there's, a, there's an ancient Chinese proverb that says that sometimes you're uh, Happiness is the cause of your smile, and sometimes your smile is the cause of your happiness. Um, what we know is that one of the inputs to your limbic region, your brain, your emotional brain, is all of the, the proprioceptors. And you, you have millions of these, millions of proprioceptors distributed throughout your body. And, um, and obviously, one of the places you have proprioceptive feedback to your brain that comes from is, is, is your face. And so there's been some really interesting studies on this space where um, I've actually tried to replicate these <laughs> just in front of audiences where I'm giving presentations as a bit of fun. But 
uh, some studies have done where they put electrodes, like you know, EMG um, electrodes, on people's faces, and they can then, by adjusting how they activate these things, cause people to either pull a smile or a frown. But because that's it's happening involuntarily, the people don't actually know what's happening. And what they do is they, they activate the people's faces in these ways, like sometimes getting causing them to pull a smile, and then get them to do activities and then report their affective experiences. And these people report after about 30 minutes or so feeling happier. Uh, been, it's, it's intriguing. You know, where, where do they get up, come up with these ideas? Um, another one they've done, there's been studies where they get people, they get, pen, get them to get a pencil and put between their teeth. Uh, if, and if, there you go. Here you go. Uh-huh. We should try this for the, for the rest of the interview. Um, <laughs> when they do that, obviously you're forced to pull a smile. And so they, they get this and they, they, they get people to do this whilst they're watching videos, comical you know, videos, and they compare it with people who are not doing that and they actually find that people who are forced to smile by just putting a pencil in your teeth report that those things to be, uh, to be funnier and to feel better. So, yeah, maybe there is something in that, the, the, the wisdom of that ancient Chinese problem. Wow, I feel like Kubrick really missed his opportunity with a clockwork orange. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> could have, he just could have done pencils instead of that uh, horrible scene with the uh, <laughs> eyelids open. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you also talk about that the limbo listens to our language, and you mention uh, bibliotherapy and, and positive self-talk. Can you talk about bibliotherapy and, you know, what it yeah. is and how we can self-administer? Yeah, look, I think bibliotherapy is essentially engaging with inspirational literature. And there's, been, there's, there's quite a science but, but behind showing a link between actually engaging with inspirational writings and sayings and texts and your mood, mood state. And so it's actually used in some circles as, um, as a method for helping people with depression. And so, you know, the, the point here is that if you look at the way that your, your brain is wired, once again, I'm keeping this in very simple terms, but you actually have links between the language centres of your, your higher brain, and I've given that a nickname too. I call that the leader because that's what it's meant to do. I, but, I, I love that because, and we'll talk, I, want to, I want to come back to why I love the fact that it's the leader and why you chose that because it's, it it's not obvious that, uh, that that's what it does. Uh, yes. But anyway, continue. I'll, I'll make a, a note to come back to that. Yeah. So in the you know in your higher brain, the you know the areas involved in language, speech, and language, like the Broca's area and the Wernicke's area, um, they're, they're wired to your emotional brain. And so the takeaway message that I I bring from that is that your limbo, your emotional brain, is listening. You know, it's listening to your language, to what you say to yourself, and what you say to other people. And, um, and what, what I find encouraging about this is, you know, we've heard for a long time the importance of, of positive, you know, self-talk and, 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 the, the, and the like. And we sort of think, oh, yeah, that's just like sort of fluffy stuff. But you, you we're wired to work that way. And what's interesting is that um, I, I use the analogy that your, your limbic region of your brain, your limbo, is, it's not your thinking brain. It's your feeling brain. Your leader, that higher brain is the thinking brain. And because it's a feeling brain it's, and not a thinking brain, I use the analogy, it's like a two-year-old kid. It's, it's a two-year-old child. It, it's, it's not, it doesn't have the ability to reason. Um, and so, therefore, it's highly impressionable, just like children are. And what I, the analogy I like to use here is that 
that means that you have essentially this, um, this, this kid sitting in here, in your, the middle of your, your, your scalp, in the middle of your, your cranium, which is driving, determining how you feel. And it's listening in to what its leader, you know, the, its, its, its guardian, if you like, is saying, and what it's saying in terms of your internal dialogue. So it doesn't even know whether the words get out your mouth or not. You know, what we say to ourselves, how, how, we, how, how we explain our circumstances to ourselves, um, and, 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 and even more so what we say to other people. You know, they, they, these language leverages our emotional states. And so, yeah, so the takeaway little lesson from that in the chapter I've, I've titled, um, Your Limbo is Listening. I think we have, we've lost an ancient wisdom, and I think that um, nowadays... We have you know, access, we have our mobile devices and on, on these, you know, these devices like this, we can carry around thousands of books you know, and information. We just have to plug it and have a look and see, you know, look up anything we want. But having it in your pocket like that is not the same as having it in your brain. And historically, when we didn't have access readily available to information like that, we would memorise things. This is part of bibliotherapy. And so I think... You know, we need it to be a great thing to, to move towards, again, ingraining inspiration in here, you know, engaging those language area parts of our brain on inspirational sayings, inspirational texts. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I make a habit of this myself. So I've got, I feel like I've got a sort of memory bank of these, might be thousands, at least hundreds of, of different quotes, different texts, things that I have found really inspirational. And what I find really intriguing is that, there are times when you, you, know, you start to feel a bit flat, you know, a bit down, and, and these sorts of things will pop into mind and they can be really quite uplifting. Hmm. What, what, what are a couple of yours? I'd love to, I'd love to trade. Yeah, one of mine is um, make, a, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given and then sink yourself into that. Each of us must, must take responsibility for doing the creative best we can with our own life. I like that. You know, to, to actually have that plastered on my office door, which I'm sitting at the moment, so my students read it when they, when they come. So, yeah, look, I've got, man, there are hundreds brewing around up there. And they pop up, they do. It's, it's really quite amazing when people take the time to reflect and really meditate on, inspira- on, 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 on sayings that are inspirational for them. Right. Um, it's funny because I, I was thinking of, like, the one I was going to share that pops up easily to mind. I think it's a direct translation of what you just said. My, yeah. Mine is the last line of Mary Oliver's A Summer's Day. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, good on you, man. Good on you. So I was, I was reading about that, but also part of me was arguing, right? Mm. Like some of it was thinking about, you know, the, the affirmation movement and positive self-talk. And I was thinking about, you know, Al Franken's old... Saturday Night Live character, Stuart Smalley, whose motto is, you know, I'm, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. <laughs> so, can, yeah. I mean, doesn't our, don't we know when we're lying to ourselves? Like, how do, how do you navigate telling, saying the words versus, be, you know, telling the truth? Yeah, and that's, this is a really important thing. And, and, you know, I actually want to make, should make this, I should make this point clear, really clear. I'm not saying, when I use the word happy, I'm not saying that, everyone can be up 24-7. It's just not. And so I think that's really important to recognise that. And in the same way, I'm not into lying to yourself, you know, saying that, hey, I mean, we we hear stories of people who, you know, Muhammad Ali, I love one of his quotes. He said, um, he said, I am the greatest. You know, he'd always be saying, I am the greatest. And then I read 
when I heard him speaking one time, he said, I am the greatest. He said, I said that even before I knew I was. Right? <laughs> but where do you go? Um, so look, you know, I, there might be something to that, but I'm not, I, I think it's really important to be realistic, you know, and, and, and to say this, but there is some really positive things that we can say. As same goes to um, dealing with relationships. I'm not saying that we shouldn't actually confront things that need to be confronted. And some of the science that I find really encouraging, quite inspiring, uh, like some of the work that's come out of um, South America with Marcel Lasada, um, and then John Gottman did a lot of work in, uh, um, in relationships as well. And they, they essentially come to the same point, and that is that for people, for, for things to work well in terms of our relationships, and this has been done in you know, marriages, it's been done in workplace environments and, and, and many other places, you need about five positive things said for every, every one negative. Right? So it doesn't mean that negative things shouldn't be said. You know, sometimes these things need to be addressed. But for us to be buoyed, right, for, for relationships to, to be buoyed, you need probably five, and, and to really flourish, you need about five positive things said. And so I would tend to adopt that same principle for ourselves, you know, at a personal level. It's not a bad thing to be real and, you know, to do the, the debrief on, hey, you know, I should have done that better or this could go better or whatever. But, you know, bring it back up with, with, with five other positive statements, things that, and it might not be, it's, and it's not about lying to yourself and saying, I am the greatest, you know, I'm going to win the Olympic marathon or whatever. It's, 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 it's not about that. It's about just, you know, reflecting on positive things, things that are hopeful, things that are excellent, things that are praiseworthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're, we're all, for various reasons, very comfortable being the prosecutor of ourselves, yeah. right? Yes. We, have, we have much less practice being the defense attorney. Point, yeah. Pointing out all the good things, all the mitigating factors. Yeah. Yes. I think for me, the takeaway, though, with this whole language thing is that you're right, this, this affirmation movement, for many of us as scientists, we just go, meh, that's just, it's pop psychology. But, you know, for me, I find it really intriguing that our brains are wired to work that way. Mm. And so language is very important. Okay. So language is the domain of the leader, Right, so that's where it comes from. So again, why, why do you call it the leader as opposed to you know I've like I've heard the executive or the what, what what does that mean for you? Yeah, because I think you know we're increasingly living in a world, and and you know it's we're sort of entering into the domain of what we call emotional intelligence. Um, but there are many times where we we see evidence of this thing that we call emotional hijacking, and it happens sometimes in on a very grand scale and sometimes on a, on a smaller scale, but, you know, in, in the, in the, on a grand scale, we see, you know, sometimes, in fact, Daniel Goleman, who wrote the book Emotional um, Intelligence, he has a, a chapter in there called um, When Smart is Dumb and he reports cases of, you know, some people who just, very intelligent people, right, so their thinking brain, their leader is, you know, very intelligent, can process information really well and yet their limbo, this two-year-old, right, that's in, in charge of your, your emotional state, it just takes over, just takes the reins. And these people do crazy things um, that are driven by their emotional state as compared to their thinking state. And so, you know, but on a smaller scale, you know, we all, we all suffer this. You know, none of us are immune from it. When, you know, take eating patterns as an example, when our leader you know, thinking brain goes, oh, really, when I, when I get home, I'm going to have my cook a nice meal and, you know, do something 
being really healthy. But when we get home, our emotional brain goes, no, nah, that that's not a great idea. Let's just go through the drive-thru and buy that, you know, big slip or whatever it might be. Um, so we all have um, experiences this. So my point is your thinking brain, your higher brain is meant to lead. Right? And so it's the one that's meant to, and, you know, we, we have, you know, the, the father of American psychology, and I made this point that we, our greatest power, right, to change our emotional experiences and even things that manage stress and other things like that is to choose one thought over another. You know, that's, we have, we, there is intentionality up here. We have the capacity to, to make those decisions and to, um, and, to, and to drive it forward. So it's meant to lead. The leader is meant to lead. That was William James, right? William James, that's correct. Right. Yeah. Um, so I get, I get that, that the leader is meant to lead. The, tru- the, the trouble is, and I've, I have been, you know, emotionally hijacked. I could, I could tell you stories that would, you know, get three quarters of my listeners to unsubscribe <laughs> if, they, if they knew. And when I, was in, when I was in that state, when I was hijacked, there's nothing you could have said to me that would have gotten through to my leader. So, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of research. I've been studying the polyvagal theory of mm-hmm. uh, sort of, you know, this entire uh, vasovagal syncope and kind of entire shutdown where our bodies are stuck. In, in that it's not even our leader, but just the cells of our body are telling that our, our brain, the things are not safe. Mm-hmm. How, where, where do you see the whole lifestyle medicine being able to help when we when the thing is sort of a stuck state or 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 a trauma somewhere in there and and just the the mental and the the intellectual and even the emotional work isn't mm-hmm. enough yeah now this this is a good question this this is sort of diving deeper than than my book goes into and i should say so really the book you know my, my book live more happy is about giving people an awareness right, of how it is that this part of their brain is wired and how, what strategies you can use from lifestyle medicine, from positive psychology to give that more uplifting images. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the truth is that there are, you know, sometimes people have, you know, adverse childhood experiences as being one particular case in point. I mean, they're coming out as a huge marker of, um, of, of ill health, you know, as people get older. Um, and affecting their life circumstances. So, you know, there are times when people need more help than the tips that I'm offering in, in this book. What I will say about the whole idea of emotional hijacking is what, we, what seems to be the case is that your emotional responses precede your rational responses in some instances. So I'll give you an example of this. If, if all of a sudden I just placed a, and we have heaps of this in Australia. Australia has like heaps of stuff that can kill you. <laughs> anyway, if you, if you get a, one of those big plastic spiders and just sit it on someone's, someone's shoulder and then, and then you let them you know, look around and they catch it, uh, you glance at the side of their, their, uh, their eyes, what you'll notice is that their emotional response comes first before they realise that it's, it's a fake. So that's like, ah! All right, so there's the emotional response right there, that message. We actually, when, when it comes from the eyes, we actually know that the signals from your optic nerve go straight to your emotional brain, right? So there's an immediate emotional response. Then it seems like it takes, there's about six more connections 
connection, six more pathways before it actually gets up to the leader. And so you see people's response, they go, ah, and then, oh, it's a, it's, they realise it's only a, it's a plastic one. So it is true, you know, in, in, in certain circumstances, our emotional response will precede our thinking response, right? However, what I find encouraging is that the leader does have the ability to determine how long that, re, that emotional response can continue for. Mm. And what's, what we know, though, is that sometimes the leader does get damaged. And as, and, and as you've indicated, sometimes there are traumas. You know, for example, if you have an acute phobia, um, and I don't like those spiders. I actually had a bad experience with them as a kid. And even when I, you know, someone gives me a plastic one, I'm still sitting there and going, oh, I'm not liking this, I'm not liking this. My emotional brain's going, oh, remember what happened last time when mm. you were seven? Um, but, you know, we, we, we can. I, I, this is where I find brain plasticity to be incredibly encouraging, this idea that we can forge new pathways, you know, that, that neurons that fire together, wire together. As, as we, if we practice this, you know, if we go through the right pr- procedures and we're going to, you need, for people, you know, this is resonating with, you, you should go and you need to see someone else to help you more than, you know, just the book will. But I find it encouraging that there, there is hope that, yes, your leader can, is meant to lead. It has the capacity to lead if you can access it in the right way. Great. So I, there's, there's a lot of, of chapters and, and um, things about, about food, about movement, um, you know, there's, there's ton, tons of really actionable tips. But one, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, which is one that I'm, I'm increasingly fascinated by, you, you know, you write about the, the phrase nature deficit disorder and, yeah. the, you know, the, the benefits of getting out into nature. Yeah. And, you know, in the beginning, when you were talking about the statistics of, you know, the number of people who are depressed and on medication and, and not thriving, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, there's, we, we can say like, what's the, what's the etiology and, and the psychology, even, even positive psychology tends to focus on the individual as the unit of, yes. uh, of interest and mm-hmm. the idea that, and, or, and, and, or humans like, you know, who are you in relationship with? And we, we look at things like, you know, dogs or equine therapy or dolphins as safe surrogates for humans. If someone does one of those, those therapies. Have you, have you grappled at all with the idea that hum, humanity should be a much more integral part of nature and that we're just missing something, that we're not the measure of all things, that somehow being immersed in a world of, of, of natural processes and possibly sort of a, a, an undiluted divinity is crucial, that it's, it's, it's not just, you know what I'm saying? It's not just about us. Mm. Oh, look, we live in, you know, characteristically, it's, it's the I generation, isn't it? And, and it is. We, we, we think that it's all about us. And the reality, well, this, is, this is one of the, the last chapters that I have in the book is, um, is called Giving is Living. And I show the science there that really getting outside ourselves is probably one of the best things that we can do for ourselves. Um, in fact, they've even talked about depression as being when our our brains and our thoughts are agonisingly turned inward. And, um, and, and so, you know, I hear you, I think that this is why we know people have a, a, con- a service mentality to their life and, you know, we, they have a sense of meaning in their life is probably the most foundational thing, the most important 
important thing to people's overall well-being. And you know, coming from um, you know, psychology, they, they define having that sense of meaning as, as belonging to and contributing to something bigger than yourself. And that doesn't need to be a, a, a humanistic cause. It doesn't need to be, it, it might be an environmental cause. It might be, you know, that whole notion, though, of, of belonging, you know, that we're, we're part of something, you know, something bigger than ourselves. I think is really, really foundational. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm hearing what you're saying. I think getting, you know, having that, that, extern, that externalising, having that outside perspective um, is really, really important. I really like... Um, what you mentioned though about the the, the outdoor that you know the natural environments and I think that is a part um, there is a, that's a factor that contributes to our well-being particularly our emotional well-being that many people are just not um, aware of enough the science here is really strong we, we, there was a study conducted here in the capital of uh, New Zealand uh, Auckland not far from me where actually they mapped the prevalence of depression and anxiety disorders and mapped it against how much access these people had to green and blue spaces. And I actually found that for every 1% increase in the amount of green space that you have, you have access to, there's a 4% reduction in depression and anxiety, which if you do the sums on it, you double your, your exposure to green environments, you've got a 400% reduction in depression and anxiety. Um, and one of the, so, so there's something incredibly therapeutic about nature. And I'm watching the sun come out my window uh, up outside my window and, and looking at the greenery and the blue. And there, there's something about that that's very powerful for us. Particularly, and this is, I think, a message that people aren't aware of enough, is bright natural light and the role that that plays. Um, you know, I talk a lot about that in the, in, in the book, but there are, the, the studies coming through, I, we're, we're spending way too much time indoors disconnected from nature. And it, it really is um, to our detriment. So before I, before I let you go, I'm curious about something that you, you, you tease on your website, but it's not fully fleshed out yet, the Lift Project? Yeah. What, yeah. what, what is that? When is it coming? What, what should we know about it? Well, the Lift Project, I, I, um, after developing the CHIP program um, and helping with that, what I, one thing I learned from the CHIP program, it's, you know, it's one thing to write a book, and books can be helpful, but for people to really learn and benefit from things, they need to engage with it. And so what I've created, which is, yeah, probably the most exciting thing I've been part of, is, um, is the Lift Project. And so I have this mission, right? This is a big mission, and I know that I'm going out on a limb here to declare it, um, but I have this, this mission to lift 10 million lives because I think the world needs a lift. And so... Um, Part of that strategy, I've got several uh, campaigns and that that uh, I'd like to launch. In fact, internet, uh, next Tuesday, uh, which is the 20th of March, uh, is International Happiness Day. And on that, we're going to be launching a campaign called Lift 10, an Instagram campaign, hashtag Lift 10, where we're going to encourage people to look out for 10 people around them and try and give them a lift in some way. And, and the little phrase, one of my inspirational quotes and sayings that I love to memorise is, um, I'll lift thee and you'll lift me and we'll ascend together. And mm. so what I would encourage people to do is to say, hey, are there 10 people that in some way I can give a little lift to or maybe a big lift to, knowing that probably in doing that you're going you're to get, um, I actually believe there's a, there's a law that governs our emotional state and it says that you reap what you sow. And so uh, we're going we're to, that's, that's hashtag lift 10 coming 
anything. But um, aside from that, I've put all the content of the book essentially into a fun educational adventure and that's called The Lift Project. It's a 10-week um, program that, um, that people can go through and where they, they learn all this stuff. There's some fun videos. I have some fun with it. And then, uh, and then there's some challenges and we say, so let's test it for a week. So, for example, the week we look at food feeds your mood. Okay, well, here's what science says works in terms of helping people feel better. Let's test it and see, see if it works for you. And then there's a week on giving is living. And so we, we look at service activities. There's a week on motion creates emotion. There's a week on blue and green should often be seen, getting outdoors. So, yeah, the Lift Project, I'm very excited. The official launch of that um, will be in June. And there is the, the website for it is theliftproject.global. Um, but we'll actually be running a, a pre-launch advanced screening, if you like, a special version, a guided tour um, commencing the 25th of March uh, this year. So if anyone would like to do that, they can, they can jump on the website and, uh, and yeah, all the details are there. Okay, it's at theliftproject.global. Theliftproject.global. Okay, and I'll include that in the show notes, but the folks who hear it here can just jot it down and go. It starts on March 25th, and we're speaking in 2018. Yes, we are. We have to remember, we're talking to people in the future. (laughs) That's right. Jetpacks and robots and all that. (laughs) Well, they'll already be lifted. Right on. <laughs> well, Darren, thank you so much. I love the book. Um, you know, even, even just, you know, one or two little things that I've added to my day, have, you know, clearly are, are lifting me and by extension, the people who, whom I come into contact with. So it's a, it's a wonderful gift you've shared with the world. And it's, you know, it's, it's such an important part of the lifestyle medicine movement because we can get so grumpy, you know? Yeah. about cholesterol and fast food and sedentarism. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're beset every day by, by messages that contradict what we know to be the truth. And yeah. so to, to have an underpinning in, in feeling better and helping other people feel better and having this global larger perspective of what we're up to is so important. It's such good medicine for all of us in the movement. Yeah, well, as I often say, you know, you can be... You can be th- and healthy and yet really miserable and so um, yeah I hope this makes a contribution in that to, to, to helping people be happier for want of a better word right on well, Darren Morton oh, oh and before, uh, before we let you go so there's the liftproject.global but what's your website for people who just want to find out more buy the book say hello sure so, um, so it's, it's www.drdarrenmorton.com is my website and also have a Facebook page which is Dr. Darren Morton and there's an Instagram uh, sites, The Lift Project, global. All right. And it's Morton with two O's, M-O-R-T-O-N. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, you're, you're, you're the most famous Darren Morton, so people misspell it on Google. They'll <laughs> find you anyway. There, must, they, there mustn't be any, any, too many others out there then. <laughs> <laughs> well, just everyone, just Google Darren Morton sub three-hour marathon. <laughs> and you'll find him. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much, Dan, for, for waking up early to, uh, to, to make this work for, for us to connect. And thank you for all the work you do. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Take care. What a sweetie, huh? 
And wasn't that baseball card thing really cool? I love that. So if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the mission of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. I have no idea why that's so important to our growth, but it is. If you want to know how, just go to plantyourself.com slash review, and there's a little video, about a minute long, that'll show you exactly how to do it. For more information about the Big Change Program slash Well Start Health, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com or wellstarthealth.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links at plantyourself.com slash 259. If this is your first time here, there are 258 archived episodes you can catch up on at plantyourself.com. And if you don't get the Big Change Bulldog, my newsletter, you can also sign up and get that at plantyourself.com. Just look on the right sidebar, throw in your email. And as they say in Australia, Bob's your uncle. Do they say that in Australia? I'm not really sure, actually. If you would like to support the show, of course, you can share this in other episodes on social media via email. You can write that iTunes review. Or as I mentioned at the beginning, you can become a patron of the Plant Yourself podcast with an ongoing monthly contribution. And you can do that at plantyourself.com. Just click on Patreon on the right sidebar. In garden news, the beds are almost entirely covered with six to nine inches of wood chips. I'm really looking forward to testing out uh, the Back to Eden method where you just grow in wood chips with small amounts of soil. And I'll let you know how that goes, of course. We've got uh, more kale inside growing under grow lights. And as soon as it stops snowing here and the weather warms up a little bit, we'll go get those into the garden. In running news, I was very happy with my marathon on Sunday. I came in two seconds faster than four hours, which was nine minutes off of my personal record, which I set last year. And considering I've been injured and I haven't really trained, I was pretty stoked about that. So um, came home, took a ice bath, went out that afternoon and worked in the garden for a while. And today's Wednesday. The marathon was on Sunday, and I'm definitely nowhere near as sore as I was after my first marathon, where I was sort of walking geriatrically for over a week. So things are progressing. It's gratitude hour. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenour.com for more of his gorgeous Cora music. And of course, thanks to the Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Meyer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Aaron, Jen Flakonowski, David Isaac, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Felton, Victoria Dolman, Olivia Stoller, Callan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Julia, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Dirks, Strong the Circus, Riley Hammond, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gilla, Sarah David, Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Visa, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Allen, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R. Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovac, Adam Scharf, Karen Berry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Derek Kelly, Machia, Deanne Norton, Don, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Couple, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosland, Ayat, Julie Langholm, Epicard, Isa Tuzin, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Car- Sherry Orlikowski, Plant Powered for Health. Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly May Baker, Miracle, Ann Jesse, and Shelley Dwyer. Oops, I mean Cheryl Dwyer. Sorry about that, Cheryl, for your generous support of the podcast. 
Well, I hope that wasn't as hard for you to hear as it was for me to say. I'm a little loopy. I think I'm going to get this baby out and go take a nap. So that's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.
right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filikonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, Ruthann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski, a plant powered for health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crap, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Lenae Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Carson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>